The Anton Savage Show on News Talk. Now, if you have kids in the room, this may be a, a good time to turn down the radio because we're talking about the impact of the Ukraine invasion, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, particularly on uh, women in that country and women as the victims of sexual violence as a weapon of war because the former Thornister, an MEP for Dublin, the um, Francis Fitzgerald, said in a speech this week, some of the worst atrocities of this war have been carried out targeting women. Perhaps the gravest of them all, rape and sexual violence as a weapon of war. And Francis Gerald, whenever this gets talked about, people then say the perpetrators must be held accountable and something must be done. It's very difficult to see how one does that, isn't it? Absolutely. You're totally right, Anton, and good morning. I mean, I spoke this week as a huge focus in the, in the Parliament this week on Ukraine, of course, and this week we were specifically looking at what's happening to women because, of course, the men have effectively been conscripted. It's extremely difficult to bring people who rape, soldiers who rape, uh, during a war to justice. In fact, the record is very poor. This time it just might be somewhat different because of the actions that we're taking. I mean, the truth is women and girls as young as 10 as old as 78, are being raped by Russian soldiers. Hard to believe the level of atrocity that is going on. And of course, rape is a crime against women. It's a war crime. It's a total crime against humanity. We've reports of nine out of 25 women systematically raped in a basement in Bucha, uh, and so on. So increasingly credible reports. And do, do, you read that? Yes. Do, you, do you read that as renegade soldiers who are ill-disciplined and amoral? Or do you read that as deliberate permission to effectively let an army forage in the most horrendous way and cause as much harm as is possible? Is it supported by the authorities? Unfortunately, it seems to be very systematic. What one has to say, could it really be a few renegade soldiers when we're getting so many reports of women being systematically raped? It seems to be embedded in the approach Uh, that the army are taking, which is just absolutely shocking in this day and age. But the level of atrocities in this war just knows no boundaries at all. We have increasing reports of women, and 90% of refugees are women, of course, for example, going into Poland and Moldova, who are pregnant as a result of rape. So we have to do two things. We have to, first of all, help the women in as many ways as we possibly can. We have a great record here of helping women, you know, with gender-based violence, the services like the Rape Crisis Centres and so on. These women are going to need all of those services, access to sexual and reproductive health care, which of course is not available when you're in the middle of the type of situation they're in. But as soon as they reach the borders, we really have to try and reach out and help them. Uh, make sure that the people are aware of the risks of trafficking as well, of course, increasing reports of trafficking at the borders. So there's quite a lot being done. The second thing we have to do is gather the evidence now and what's different this time is that Eurojust which is the European agency for you know coordinating criminal justice actions there's a joint investigation team gone in to to Ukraine with Europol and get, gathering evidence taking statements doing as much as they can but you can imagine we know how difficult it is to prosecute rape uh, in Ireland and how low the conviction rate is can you imagine in wartime, you have the very same problem. But at least there's this greater efforts being made now. But it's also about helping the women with all of the needs 
that they have when they leave Ukraine. Well, and of well, course, on we that have to note, so uh, many are displaced the, as well. And even regardless of the women who have left Ukraine, victims of sexual violence in Ireland, there is support services, both in terms of medical supports, counselling supports, and the women, in some cases, will have a broader network of friends and family to uh, support them in, in recovery. Almost all of that is stripped away in wartime. So is there anything that can be done for the women in the country who find themselves victims of these atrocities? Very big question. I mean, there's 80,000 women pregnant right now in Ukraine uh, waiting to the delivery of their babies. Can you imagine? And 7.1 million have been displaced internally. So you're right. All of the normal support services you would have as a pregnant woman have been completely stripped away. And what they, what is happening is that the NGOs, the non-governmental organisations and voluntary groups and volunteers are being supported by the EU to go in where it's safe to do so. And of course, it isn't safe in much of Ukraine and build up whatever services they can. But it is horrific. I mean, we are hearing about, you know, babies been infected with sepsis two and three days after they've been born because they're in basements. So like it's beyond our imagining what is happening and of course it is about trying to get the resources together. Uh, The EU is pulling an awful lot of resources together for refugees both inside and outside the country as we know. Uh, But it's it's a very difficult task when you have, you know, sexual and gender based violence being used as a a weapon in a war. It's a war crime and uh, you know, the only solution, obviously, is to end the war. And that is proving increasingly difficult. Well, on that note, can you can you give us a sense of the level of consensus at Parliament and Commission level? Because Viktor Orban this week said that the, the plans to ban Russian oil would be an atomic bomb to uh, his economy, 60% dependent on Russian uh, oil imports and Russian gas imports to keep the, the lights on. Those kind of statements would suggest that the consensus that is needed from the EU isn't there. Likewise, we've seen Germany ban or rather um, provinces within Germany ban the flying of Ukrainian flags from certain um, landmarks, apparently so as not to escalate issues. But that kind of thing would suggest that some of what we saw as apparent consensus at the outside is beginning to dilute. Well, look, I mean, I've been involved in many discussions in the last few weeks in Parliament in relation to this. And I'm very struck, first of all, by the consensus that's been there. Coal has been banned, for example, that ban to come in within six months. This week, Ursula von der Leyen announced uh, the possible ban on oil. Now, you have had a number of countries, primarily uh, Hungary, and of course, Viktor Orban is prone to those kind of statements. And, you know, he's not the greatest supporter of the EU at present, unfortunately. And in fact, we're taking proceedings uh, against Hungary because of the breaking of the rule of law there. And it's a question mark whether they'll get the funding that's due to them or not because of that. But I I have seen a lot of consensus. But what I've also seen, being honest, is I've seen particularly, for example, Germany, with its huge dependence on gas, although it has reduced it from 55, Russian gas, from 55% to 35% in the last few weeks and months, which is quite remarkable. I have seen huge concern about the economic impact but, you know, the, the arguments that are being made, of course, by those who want to see the sanctions being uh, on gas uh, as well as oil and uh, coal uh, and against the banks and so on. I mean, the argument is we're funding the, the Russian war to the tune of 600 million euros a day. It's hard to imagine. And I mean, what it has really exposed is the West's reliance on Russian energy. And I think the consensus, I think what you're going to increasingly see 
is uh, some differentials in the approach. But I think you could still get an agreement on oil, but you'll get longer time frames for the countries well, most you know, dependent. Because I, ca- I cast my mind back to the start of COVID when people were standing out in the streets clapping the people who worked in the HSE. It wasn't that long to the point that being asked to wear a mask for some became an infringement on their civil liberties and something they wanted to rebel against. There's a lot of support for Ukraine. There's a lot of support for sanctions. Until the point at which gas prices start to get out of hand, petrol prices start to get out of hand, and it starts to hit people in their pockets. But of course, I mean, that is the human way, isn't it? Uh, That our patience, you know, doesn't last, even in the most horrific of circumstances. But I think we have to continue to keep Ukraine high on the agenda. Of course, there's going to be pain in Europe. I mean, this point is increasingly being made. We have inflation already. We have the we have the gas prices. It's going to take a time to get alternative sources of oil and gas. Uh, but there's things that can be done. There's EU storage. There's EU tendering. There are initiatives that can be taken at European level to help deal with the impact on member states. Look at the way the EU dealt with COVID. Look at the money that was put in. Look at the loans that were raised. Look at the way we were able to help uh, employers and employees. Of course, people change their attitude as time goes on. You know, Ukraine may have less of a priority. But when you see what's happening and the potential to move for Putin to move into Moldova, I mean, I, I was listening to one commentator the other the day at our group meeting and he said you know Putin doesn't really see borders or boundaries he doesn't see the sort of boundaries of countries like Lithuania and Latvia and Moldova I mean he really wants to revert to the situation of 30 years ago he wants to take back you know the Russian empire as he sees it so it's in all our interests I mean you're weighing up the cost if this war continues and if Putin gets away with this the impact on democracies across Europe and the dangers that he poses versus dealing with short-term pain in our economies and in our personal lives. So I think those are the kind of choices that will be before all of us, before in, in all of our countries. And uh, it may just temper that impatience. Francis Fitzgerald, thank you very much. That is uh, Francis Fitzgerald, former Thonish, now MEP for Dublin. The Anton Savage Show, Saturday morning at 9 on News Talk. No matter how busy we are, how can we make the most of our lives each day? By spending quality time together or spending time giving back. However you spend each day, spend it doing what matters to you with Debit MasterCard. Because a life well spent is truly priceless. Learn more at mastercard.ie.